You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 8 verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful to be in your presence this morning, Father, and we pray, Father, that, Lord, you would minister to our hearts by way of your word, that, Father, you would help to press the arguments of this great letter to our hearts, and that, Father, as we look to these arguments, as we follow this flow, as we come to some of these great truths, some of which we've heard so many times, and the familiarity of it uh, perhaps has left us uh, uh, less shocked by the truth that, Father, you would be pleased to meet us with your unction this morning, that you'd be pleased, Father, to uh, perhaps shake us out of uh, any numbness that we'd have uh, due to familiarity. And, Father, we pray that as we look at some of the points that Paul makes here, that, Father, you would work those points into our hearts that, Lord, uh, we might find ourselves in a really in a new and invigorated state of adoration and worship of you. So, Father, we pray uh, to these ends in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I think uh, as we saw last time, one of the things I want to do this morning is begin really by reviewing what we did last week. It's uh, sometimes hard to remember a message even 24 hours later after you've heard it, let alone uh, how many hours are we removed. Uh, um, so uh, there are a couple of highlights that I want to that I want to review, and uh, then I would like to kind of stand back, take a look at at Paul's argument from a, a fresh vantage point, and then begin plowing into Romans 8 up to the text that we come to this morning. In our last study, if you look at verse 5. Uh, there we saw that there are really two in, two different individuals there, aren't there? There are those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. And by flesh, what is meant is anything that would be in uh, hostile uh, disobedience or hostile rebellion against God. You know, it would be the the human pride stuff, the... Uh, the self-worship, disobedience, worldliness, uh, things of the like. Uh, we can remember Luther's comment. I think it's so helpful that he, he described the flesh as, quote, our fallen egocentric human nature. It's that, that constant default that we go to where our, our focus is really incessantly on ourselves, isn't it? Um, um, that's the flesh. And, of course, by the Spirit, what is meant is the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit. And I think more specifically in these verses is what the Holy Spirit does in the souls of people. Um, so 
we have two different individuals here. Those who are living according to the flesh, those who live according to the spirit. And last week, there were two important insights that I really wanted to, to drive home last week. And I remind you of them. Uh, the, the, the first of these two important insights is this. The only one who can be truly spiritually minded uh, are true believers. Uh, only a true believer can be truly spiritually minded. Um, I, I can't stress that enough because the evil one is in the counterfeiting business. Um, you know, the book of Revelation really reveals that. I don't want to digress into that as tempting as that would be this morning, but um, that's that's the point. You know, you read the book of Revelation and you see these monsters coming out of the sea and you, you see, oh, what, what is all that about? Uh, the, 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 the devil is in the counterfeiting business. He... He counterfeits um, the things that God does. And as unbelievers, we can have a semblance of spiritual mindedness. I mean, uh, we can have experiences that in many ways resemble spiritual mindedness, but um, we can never be truly spiritually minded. And uh, why this is will flesh out here in a few minutes. And I think you can already see why I'm driving that point home. Because if you recall last week, I, I wasn't pointing to the world last week as I was developing the two different types of individuals. You remember, I stayed within the, largely within the confines of the church. Um, it, should be no, it should be no surprise that we could look around in the world and find people that are fleshly minded. That should be no surprise. But when we look at the church at large itself, um, we can look around in the church and find plenty of the same. And the scary thing is many individuals in the church uh, fully believe that they're spiritually minded. Uh, so this is um, quite scary. The second insight that I want to draw to your attention is those who are spiritually minded still have a measure of fleshly mindedness. And I do this because as I develop the first point, some of you, especially those of you who are sensitive, are thinking, okay, well, I, I have these thoughts and I have these things and I do this stuff. Am I really spiritually minded? And the true spiritually minded person can, will have that. Um, uh, the true spiritually minded person will have it. Remember how John Owen put it. He said, quote, as unto the qualities expressed by the flesh and the spirit, there may be a mixture of them in the same persons at the same time. There may be a mixture of them in the same persons at the same time. There is so in all that are regenerate. In other words, there is so in all that are true believers. Now, I raise this point because we don't want to be thinking something strange is happening to us or that we're a second-rate believer, or that we're not a believer at all, when in fact the matter is we are actually believers. Uh, Galatians 5.17, Owen quotes, he says, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Uh, so the true believer has a mixture of these things. And that leads us to question this. Okay, um, how are we supposed to know if we're spiritually minded or not? And the, you'll recall last week I said, well... Um, what Owen points us to is this uh, diagnostic. Uh, we run this diagnostic on our soul. When you're left to your own devices, when you're able to sit and relax and not think about anything at all, what comes to mind? What do you think about? Are, are these things above or are they things of the world? Um, I could put it still another way. What prevails in our hearts? 
Do we think more about the Lord and the things of the Lord? Or do we think more about the world and the things of the world? Um, These are, uh, that really is principally the test. Because the true believer is going to to prevail uh, in spiritual mindfulness, not fleshly mindfulness. Now, let me again qualify that. We can go through seasons where we're, Believers can backslide. Sleever, believe, true believer can backslide. A true believer can go through seasons where, uh, you know, it, it would seem that the flesh has consumed us. That's a very dangerous position. If we find ourselves in that position, that's a very dangerous position. That's why this is so very important. That's a review of last week. That's the first part of what I want to do. The second part of what I want to do this morning is is take another look at Paul's argument, really from the vantage point of the dominion of sin and law. Um, If we back up a little bit, you don't need to do that, but in your mind, back up to Romans 5. Paul there taught us that when we're born into this world, we're born into union with Adam. We're born in in this, uh, uh, we could say we're born into the realm of sin and death. You remember all that language that I used when we were back in, Romans chapter 5, born in Adam, born into the realm of sin and death. You can look back if you want to Romans 6.21. I didn't say much about this verse because I've been saving it. Um, But in Romans 6.21, Paul is looking back to when the believer was under the dominion of sin. He's looking back uh, uh, before the conversion of the believer. And he asks, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. You know, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? And he concludes the verse saying, the end of those things is what? Is death. The end of those things is death. J.C. Rowell used to say it this way, we die as we live. We die as we live. I mean, if we live lives for all intents and purposes that really function and act as if God doesn't exist, um, then um, we can remember what Paul said in Romans one twenty one. I mean, that's one of the indictments against humanity. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that although we know that God exists, fallen humanity, although that we know that God exists and we can see that God exists from everything that has been made, we neither give thanks nor honor to him. Uh, in other words, we don't offer him worship. Um, fallen humanity refuses to worship God. If you look ahead to Romans 8 and verse 7, Paul says that the mind, the fallen mind, the mind that is set on the flesh is what? It's hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And the point here is Paul is describing unbelief as slavery. It's slavery. It's something the unbeliever is so completely, uh, so completely uh, enslaved that he is unable or she is unable to break free. Now, I don't think I'd be out of line if I said that a majority of the people in our culture today would sharply disagree with this. Do you think that would be out of line if I said that? And unfortunately, I'm not sure I'd be out of line if I said a majority of the church at large would disagree with this because it's largely believed that we can we have free will and we can choose anytime we want to do anything we want, that our lifestyles are indeed a choice and uh, we, you know, we can... We can choose this any time. I mean, we could choose to believe and follow Jesus uh, any time that we would want to do so. Well, the next time someone makes that claim to you, invite them to do it. 
<laughs> Just invite him to do it. Okay, if you can follow Jesus anytime you want, then just do it. Just do it. Um, they're going to discover they can't. Not without the, not without the intervention of God. Um, why can't they? It's because they're enslaved. Um, and we experience that every time we talk to people about the gospel. And you can tell people the great truths of the gospel and you just watch the, the glaze of the eyes that just don't see it. They just don't get it. It just runs off their backs like water off the back of a duck. Why? They're in a cell. They're in the cell and they can't get out. Um, our will is free. We do have free will, but we only have free will to choose from the fruit of our nature. And fallen humanity, um, as fallen human beings, I mean, we have a fallen nature and we're enslaved to that nature. Our friend will not, in and of her own strength, be able to become a follower of Jesus. So here we see that the biblical teaching is that in our natural state, we cannot um, break free from that unbelief. When I, back in the days when, you know, this was so new to me and I just, you know, I'd come to Christ and, we had our music store, and I thought, boy, if I could just educate everybody about Jesus, you know, if I could just tell them about Jesus, then, then they, they're going to want to come to him. And, and uh, oh, goodness, my, oh, my. Um, University of Hard Knocks right there, boy. Um, it just wasn't that simple. Um, it's not that simple, is it? Um, it's because we're enslaved. And... Paul has also taught us that we're under the dominion of the law as well. Not only are we under the dominion or the lordship or slavery of sin, but we're also held captive by the law. Look at me. Look with me to Romans seven verses five to six. Paul says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which what? Held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Notice that Paul uses the words, held us captive. You know, um, there's much that could be said about this, but let me just say this this morning for, the penalty, for, for, for this morning's um, considerations. I mean, the law carries a penalty when it's broken, doesn't it? I mean, it's part of the law, isn't it? I mean, if we break the law, there's a penalty. You can, you can get, you know, up... You know, a minute, there's a minimum and there's a maximum that you can get for any law that you break. And uh, the, once you break the law, the law has a hold of you. Uh, it has this grip on you. Uh, we understand that uh, in our natural state. If we get caught, there's consequences that we could face. Uh, but when it comes, when it comes in our natural state, when it comes to, to, to God, we we kid ourselves that he can't see us. You know, God can't see us. He's... Uh, you know, we're going to get away with this. We're going to get away with that. Uh, and I'm speaking uh, of, uh, of humanity in its natural state. And this is the indictment of the psalmist. The psalmist in Psalm 36, verses 1 to 2 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Listen to verse 2. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. And even, you know, as we sin, we... We just kind of forget that God's watching us, don't we? We really do. I mean, um, Psalm 33, verse 13. 
But the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. Uh, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, there's no escape. And these are things that we we certainly know. Fallen humanity is held captive under the dominion of the laws that is breached. Now, with all of this gloomy news in, in mind here, uh, we come to Romans chapter 8. And look at the very first verse of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Um, there's a good reason why Romans 8 is, for many people, their favorite chapter in all of the Bible. Because we were once held captive by the law. And we were once under the dominion of sin. And that's exactly where we would still be if it weren't for verse 3. Look at, look at Romans 1, eight, chapter 8, verse 1. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Look at verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done something that we could not do. What is that? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We would still be there, wouldn't we? And I don't know if you ever take a moment to think about that. Um, where would we be had God not intervened in our lives? Uh, where would we be if he had not opened up our hearts and opened up our minds? Where, where would we be? And um, I trust that none of us attribute our belief because we're smarter than other people or that we're more righteous than other people. I mean, I know all you really well. I don't think you think that. Um, sometimes you can find yourself just asking you this question, asking yourself this question, like I've asked myself this question many times. Why me? I mean, why, why would God meet me with such wonderful grace? And I can think of a lot of people that are, that are nicer than me, that are, that are more righteous than me, that I think are much more deserving than me. Um, None of us are deserving, we know that, but you understand what I'm trying to say? And you ask yourself, why me? Well, those answers are only, uh, are, are only to be found in, in, in God. Um, but here we have one tremendous truth right after another in Romans 8. That's why it's such a, a wonderful chapter. Paul's telling us in verse 1, there's no condemnation for the true believer. And he's telling us that the believer's been set free from the captivity of the law. He's telling us that the believer's been set free from the dominion of sin. And there's one more precious truth here this morning, and that the true believer is no longer in the flesh. He's no longer, or she is no longer set on fleshly mindedness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in his or her heart. Look at verse 9. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And there's an if there. That's a conditional clause. That's a conditional. That's conditional. If if a condition is met, what is that condition? If 
in fact, the, whole, the spirit of God dwells in you. That's why I, I, I say that nobody can, that it's completely impossible to be spiritually minded and not be a true believer. Because the requirement to be spiritually minded is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. And only a true believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts. Now, the subject that I want to take up this morning is the subject of God dwelling with us. Um, As I said in my prayer, there's a challenge with this. I think the challenge is, as I've worked through this week, I think the challenge is, if I said to you, I I got this wonderful truth. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of all believers? I'd say, well, yeah, I mean, we all know that. We've heard that so many times. Is it surprising? Is it is it is it amazing? I have a sneaking suspicion that it's one of those truths that because of familiarity, because we've heard it so many times, because we've thought it so many times that it's lost its amazement. And what I want to do with the remainder of this morning's message is I want to give you five points. At the end of the message, I'll, I'll restate them. You'll probably have to write them down to remember them. I had to write them down to remember. Um, but the point in these statements is to get us to set our minds in motion to thinking about how truly amazing it is that God dwells in our hearts. Um, the first point that I want to make is one that I'm already rambling on, and and it's that the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of every believer. Um, it's the most fundamental mark of a believer. It's the most very, it's the most basic and fundamental mark of all believers. Look at the end of verse nine, the last sentence. You see what Paul writes there? What's he write there? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, what? Does not belong to him. Now, ne- never let anyone tell you that there are believers out there who have yet to be sanctified. Has anybody heard that before? Sure you have. Um, uh, or you might say, well, they, you know, they believe, but they haven't been anointed with the Holy Spirit yet. Uh, you'll hear people say that. Um, now, I'm not talking about progressive sanctification here. When you talk about sanctification, there's two different types of sanctification. There's progressive sanctification, which... Progressive sanctification is simply this. Um, Every believer is now on a continuum. He or she is now on this continuum where he or she is becoming more and more Christ-like. So progressively, they're becoming more Christ-like. In other words, progressively, they're becoming more and more sanctified. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the other side of sanctification, which is positional sanctification. It's where you now are. And the fact is, if you are a true believer, uh, God has declared you righteous simply because of the merits of Christ Jesus. He has declared you righteous. And uh, Ephesians teaches us in chapter 1 that you have been seated in Christ in the heavenly places. The scriptures teach us that we are hidden with Christ. The scriptures teach us that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. That's where you are positioned. If you are a true believer, 
You are sanctified in that way. It is not possible for you to be a true believer and not be sanctified that way. And furthermore, it is not possible for you to be a true believer and not be in possession of the Holy Spirit. So don't let anyone ever tell you, well, such and such, you know, uh, uh, you know, he, he's a believer, but he hasn't been sanctified. Or he's a believer, he just hasn't been anointed with the Holy Spirit. You can say, have you ever read Romans 8 9? Because if he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't even belong to Christ. Now, um, there may be a number of things wrong with this particular person, but um, this isn't one of them. I can assure you this isn't one of them. Um, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Let me... Let's think about the opposite of that. That means everyone who is in Christ has the Holy Spirit. Are you in Christ this morning? How do I know if I'm in Christ? Are you trusting Him? I mean, you're trusting Him. Are you taking Him to be yours? I mean, you're trusting Him. Of course you are. Um, you're in possession of the Holy Spirit. It has to be that way. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to it. See? So I think it's a I think it's an awful thing if we run around saying, well, you know, there's such and such as a believer, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. And then we could all sit here and say, well, I wonder if I've got the Holy Spirit. Or we could sit here and say, man, I wish I was like Susie over here. She has the Holy Spirit, but I don't. No, no, that's 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 uh, that would be a terrible thing. So the first point that I want to make is that all believers, all of us, all believers, everyone who's in Christ has the Holy Spirit. The second point is that the Holy Spirit is referred to both as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. If you look in verse 9, take a look at verse 9 with me. Notice in the first sentence, there's two sentences there, right? In the first sentence, the, 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 the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of God. This is, of course, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, but look at the second sentence. In the second sentence, the Holy Spirit is referred to as what? The Spirit of Christ. Now, um, what do we say about that? Well, there's a marvelous little there's a marvelous little caveat here concerning the Trinity, isn't there? And especially considering the person of Jesus. Um, for the Spirit to be called the Spirit of God is not surprising. It shouldn't be surprising. The Spirit of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Often when God is, is mentioned like this, uh, uh, we could think of the Father. It'd be the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of God. But then we're told that the same Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And this is, um, this is uh, teaching us about Jesus' dual nature, isn't it? That Jesus is not only human, but he's also God. Um, the Spirit of God is the same Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. This is a clear reference not only to the Trinity, but also to the, the, the divine nature of Jesus. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because of my third point. Who is it exactly that dwells in our hearts? It's God himself. Now, again, that don't sound maybe that don't sound surprising yet. That's why I wanted to go to Psalm 24 this morning. I should have asked you to save your places when you were at Psalm 24 this morning. I, I didn't think of it then, but I, I, I think it would be helpful for you if you kept your place in Romans 8 and you went back to Psalm 24. We might ask ourselves, well, what did Psalm 24 have to do with all this? Well, it actually has a whole bunch to do with this. And 
I think it opens it up for us if we look backwards. Psalm 24, page 458 in in the church's Bible anyway. Psalm 24, while you're turning there, I'll get started. I mean, the first two verses ascribe to the Lord. They read the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What is God doing? What, what is the psalmist doing there? He's ascribing ownership uh, to God. Uh, he owns everything. Uh, he owns it all. He owns us. He, 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 he owns the whole thing. And there's a word of praise here given to the grander and absolute ownership of God. And then verses three to six concern the presence of God. Who is going to ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And here, this, this concerns the presence of the Lord. And in fact, the presence of the Lord is really, I think, the fundamental uh, motif of Psalm 24, is the presence of the Lord. And so if you look with me down to verses 7 to 10, you, there's this jubilant uh, refrain that seems to be lifted up. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. You see that it's practically repeated almost word for word, isn't it? And um, in these verses, God is approaching his people. And in the economy, in this Old Testament economy, the presence of God was represented by what? It was the Ark of the Covenant, wasn't it? And this psalm may have been an early liturgical hymn that celebrated the Ark being brought into, uh, under David, you could go to 2 Samuel 6, read the story where, where David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem would represent the very presence of God coming into Jerusalem. And all around this whole thing, everybody is jumping up and down. And and we know from that story, if you go back sometime this afternoon, read that story, you'll find David is dancing and he's jubilant and everybody's up and down. What's happening? God is coming. He is bringing his presence uh, into Jerusalem. Now, where where would the... Ark of the Covenant eventually reside. It would go into the tabernacle and it would go into the most holy place, which would be completely out of sight, wouldn't it? And then later it would be moved to the temple as it was as it is built uh, under Solomon. And we would never see it. It's it's we know it's in there somewhere and we can we can we can get to a certain proximity of it, but we can't really get too, too close to it. But it's in there. We could come to the parking lot. Some of us could come to the parking lot. Some of us wouldn't be allowed to get past the parking lot. We're only allowed to be in the parking lot. Okay, if we go past the parking lot, we do so upon pain of death. That's what the sign says. So we can't go past the parking lot, but at least we can get to the parking lot. We're in the parking lot of where God dwells. Now, others, they can go up the steps, you know. And they can go up to this court and they get, a, they get a little closer view. And still others, they can go beyond there. And the priests, you know, they can go there. And Only once a year can the high priest go into the most holy place, but he has to fill the place up with incense so he can't see anything. Okay, let's go to Romans 8. 
what's happening in Romans 8. Verse 9. What's Paul telling us in verse 9? You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, God dwells in your heart. It's a truly amazing thing, isn't it? If anyone is in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in them and, and, and um, the union between the Holy Spirit and the Father and the union between the Holy Spirit and the Son is so close that when the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts, by virtue of that union, guess what? Jesus dwells in our hearts as well. And so does the Father. It's a stunning truth, isn't it? <laughs> Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Amen. The fourth point, are we allowed to have four points? I think we're supposed to have three. I got four, actually I got five, but... <laughs> The fourth point, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, the believer is the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Look, look, at, look at the text. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from what? The dead dwells in you. The Spirit who dwells in the hearts of believers is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. There's only one Holy Spirit. In fact, you know, the Holy Spirit who raises Jesus from the dead is also the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus for his earthly ministry. You know, the miracles he performed. Same Holy Spirit working in Christ is the same Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And the same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus, that perfect obedience is the same Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Isn't that amazing? We don't get a different Holy Spirit. We don't get like a bargain one. We don't get the economy model. Oh, it's good enough for these characters. It would be good enough for us. But that's not what God gives us. It's one and the same. There's only one Holy Spirit. My fifth point. This is really a good point. And this is a good point to take into the nursing home with you. This is a good point to take anywhere you want to go where someone is suffering. Um, and it's though our bodies are wasting away in death, the spirit has breathed eternal life into us. Now, where do I get this from? Well, from verse 11, you know, look at it again with me. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's part of it. But if you back up to verse 10, Paul has stated that our bodies, I mean, I take this to mean that they're in a state of decay. He says, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was not only a terrific pastor and, and theologian, but was also an outstanding medical doctor, said, listen, when you're born and you take your first breath, 
one of your last. It's one of your last. We're only going to take so many. Our bodies are in a state of decay. Some of us are really young and it hasn't started to happen yet, but some of us aren't as young and it has started to happen uh, in varying degrees. Things don't work like they used to work and things don't feel like they used to feel. No matter what you do, your body is in a state of decay. Our bodies are wasting away in death, but if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and the Holy Spirit has breathed into you eternal life. Eternal life. The Holy Spirit's our guarantee that this is ours, isn't it? Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 4. He says, we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, that is our body, if it is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. And listen, listen to this last line here. This is the best line. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. These bodies that aren't going to be here for very long um, will be swallowed up by eternal life, which will be permanent. It'll be permanent. So in conclusion, I offer these five points for reflection and hope that they will hopefully set our hearts and minds into worshipful adoration. I don't think they're all going to do it equally so, and I don't think they'll do it right away. I think they will only do it. Maybe there's maybe there's part of us that are saying, well, I feel myself being stirred in that direction. I hope that's the case. That's what I've prayed for. But what I find with things like this is they require meditation. We have to store these things in our hearts and prayerfully work on these things. So I'll, I'll give them to you again if you... If you want to write them down, um, if later you want me to send you a text or something, just let me know. But um, the first one is the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of every believer. The second is the Holy Spirit is referred to as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. The third is it is God himself who dwells in the heart of every believer. The fourth, the spirit who dwells in the heart of the believer is the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and empowered him for his earthly ministry. And fifthly, though our bodies are wasting away in death, the spirit has breathed eternal life into us. May God apply his truth to our hearts. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these nuggets that are just beyond our ability, Father. We can... If we feel, I feel so terribly inadequate to try to preach these things, Father, because they are so they're so great. They're they're beyond any eloquence that we can offer. They're they're beyond any any articulation that we can that we can do, Father. These truths are so they're so they're so wonderful that Father, uh, this message is is really such a, a poor wrapper for uh, for such great nuggets, Lord. We pray that, Father, you would be pleased to bless these things to our hearts, that, Lord, you would begin to stir our hearts out of any numbness that might be uh, associated with a a truth that we've heard so many, many times, but that, Father, you'd be pleased to really take us into the nuts and bolts of this truth, that we would begin to really understand what's taking place here, Father. So, Lord, we do pray that, 
Father, apply these truths, apply apply the truths of your word to our hearts. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen.